As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Muddy Knees Media. This Christmas slash Hanukkah slash Winterval slash holiday season, The Athletic wants you to bog off. Because when you buy one annual subscription, you'll get another one for free. And similarly, when you gift a year's subscription, you can get one for yourself at no extra cost. So wave goodbye to 2020 and say hello to 2021 by sharing the gift of The Athletic's unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com slash galazzo. Today on Galanzo, some sinister business as we look back on the many lives of Mihalovic, prodigy, hard man, suspected racist, serial spitter, leukemia survivor, and for some, the greatest taker of free kicks ever seen. Bondi! Gentili ascoltatori, welcome to Galazzo. Just uh, me and James Horncastle today. Gab sitting this one out. Hello, James. Hello, Jimbo. Bit right. of Sven, though, coming in. There's a bit of Sven and other bits, too. And one very big topic to talk about, Sinisa Mihalovic. A guy who's done so much, James, that you almost forget how much he's done. Well, indeed. I mean, the one of the quotes to start his book is that life is an impenetrable miracle. And uh, I think in some respects, Mihailovic is, is, it has many shades to it, um, which, you know, I think require deep exploration because with Mihailovic, I think he is one of those people that certainly outside of Italy, outside of, outside of Serbia, um, lots of people have a, uh, they seem to have already formed their opinions of. They've kind of right. rushed to judgment about him. And, uh, you know, I think maybe over the course of this podcast, we will uh, we'll get closer to the actual core of the man, the truth of the man, whilst also referring to his core, because he, often, he, he talks a hell of a lot about his sculpted marble abs and, and how mm. that's core strength, which one right. of the rece- secrets behind that free kick-taking uh, technique, James. <laughs> Cover a lot of ground there. You've been reading his book, as as have I, La Partita della Vita, the the game of my life, really, which itself covers a lot of ground. This is a 
a, a gentleman who, who won the European Cup, age just 21, who lived through the Yugoslav Civil War with a Serb father and a Croatian mother, who became the best set-piece taker ever in Serie A. That's right, ever. And, as we mentioned, perhaps his greatest achievement, coaching Bologna to a miracle season while battling leukaemia. You may not like Sinisa. Many times I've quite actively disliked him. But you'll recognise, I'm sure, that his is a remarkable story. All right, it's the 1980s in the former Yugoslavia, and a young Sinisa Mihalovic is growing up in Borova, near Novi Sad, possibly enjoying, like other youths, the early electropop stylings of Yugoslav duo Denis and Denis, here with hit of the mid-80s, Programme Twog Komjutera. Programme your computer. Yugoslavia, as Sinisa himself puts it, was six states, five nations, four languages, three religions and two alphabets, all held together by only one man, Marshal Tito. And the death of President for Life Tito in 1980 would begin that country's slow slide into bitter civil war. Sinisa just remembers it as bringing an extra day off school. In his biography, he recalls a simple adolescence, James, spent largely smacking the ball into a garage door for hours on end while he wasn't carving a name out for himself in various youth football teams. Yeah, he used to get up at six in the morning uh, as a kid. When I was his age, I would just have lie-ins all the time if I wasn't at school. And yet he would get up. Um, his dad bought him a uh, kind of old-school leather ball from the flea market um, and he would just smash it uh, at the garage door. Um, and this was much to the kind of annoyance of his neighbours. Was it uh, Dragan, who basically went and worked at the shoe factory? Everybody uh, did. He did the night shift, mm. and he would get in at uh, around the time that uh, Sinisa would be practising his uh, his shooting and uh, wouldn't be able to get, to get to sleep. So he kind of said, look, Sinisa... Just make sure you pick the right team. You have to go to the team I support, Partizan Belgrade. And, of ah. course, Sinisa was never going to do that because he grew up uh, worshipping Red Star. Red Star, indeed. An incredible group of players who were coming up at this time right across Yugoslavia. Mihalovic, Zvonimir Boban, Brozineski, Davosuka, Miatovic, Jani, Jugovic as well, Alan Boxic too many of whom were part of that incredible generation that went with the Yugoslav under-20 team and won the World Cup in 1987 in, in Chile. And one of the points that uh, Sinisa makes about the war is how it actually robbed the game of one of the greatest national sides that ever existed. Uh, all of us young, as he puts it, all of us with 10, 15 years of possible successes ahead of us. But after 1992, that group of players never played together again. 92 is when they really would have had their chance at greatness uh, on the senior level. The the Euros, which we all remember as the, the Danish fairy tale, but was rather different for Sinisa and co, who were in their retiro in their hotel in Sweden, ready for the championships, and then told that not only were they kicked out of the tournament, but they had to get back to Serbia by midnight before the no-fly zone was was imposed. Yeah, and uh, they had this legendary pilot, didn't they, apparently, um, Popov, who uh, uh, managed to get them back. I think he he advised that they basically fill the, the, the petrol tank on the plane only sort of half full so they would be able to get there quicker. And yet 
someone filled it all the way. Um, so that slowed them down. And then they were strafed by some MiG fighter jets. I don't think they actually got strafed, but certainly the, the MiG jets were flying alongside them and gesticulating for them to take it down. And Poffo says, no. And, and Mihalovic says, I was sat in the cockpit with him saying, what are you doing? Take us down. And Poffo says, we're a national football team. They'll never shoot us down. And of course, they didn't. But extraordinary scenes. Yeah, and the source of, scenes. of regret, I, I suppose, is that... Um, Denmark went on to win that competition and they finished ahead of Denmark in their group. They won seven uh, games. I think they only lost one. So an almost perfect record. And um, for Sinisa, I think the reason why that is such a source of regret was because he didn't play in the under-20 World Cup winning team that uh, preceded this a couple of years prior um, because he turned down the chance to go to uh, Dinamo Zagreb and, you know, he feels that in rejecting them and the kind of clout and power that uh, they had within the federation, um, it was the reason behind his non-selection. So, you know, watching, you know, his teammates in a bar basically um, you know, cry with joy and lift um, the World Cup, um, I think is, 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 is still a success that he really, really wanted to be a part of. Mm. He turned down. Dinamo Zagreb because he wanted to stay with his local side Vojvodina who rather improbably with him in the first team at the age of just 19 swept to the Yugoslav league title ahead of the big four Yugo clubs Dinamo Zagreb uh, Hayuk split Red Star Belgrade and Partizan Belgrade a Leicester-style fairy tale, James, because uh, Vojvodina uh, were uh, promoted in the year that he joined them um, mm. after turning down all those Deutschmarks in a uh, in a I think a suitcase or briefcase at least from from uh, Dinamo Zagreb, and uh, yeah, I think they'd only won the league title once um, before mm-hmm. under someone who'd who'd also his whose destiny he'd also crossed, which was uh, Vujadin Boskov. Vujadin Boskov. Um, what a legendary figure he was. And yes, he, he will crop up again soon enough. Anyway, Mihalovic then joins Red Star Belgrade and at the age of 21 becomes European champion with them. Part of, again, an incredible lineup. Savicevic was there, Prozineski, Jugovic, Darko Panchev, the Cobra, who, of course, Rangers fans will recall for the uh, the, the goals he, he scored against them, knocking them out of that. European Cup uh, Darko Panzer who would go on to play in- for, for Inter and yeah. uh, the Cobra became the grass snake he was so yeah. tame uh, in Serie A so grasshoppers were knocked out by Red Star Rangers as well then Dinamo Dresden in the quarters before the side from Belgrade met Bayern Munich in the semi-finals Jupp Hunks in charge big names in their team of course Jürgen Kula, Stefan Reuter Stefan Effenberg as well Brian Laudrup and uh, the, the boys from Bavaria, very much favourites. But Red Star got a 2-1 win in Munich. And then the return leg turned out to be something pretty special from this young fellow they'd signed. to Well, if you don't speak Serb, that's them saying incredible. Mihalovic with the free kick opening goal there. And he was to get, or at least set up, the second Red Star goal, which took them through a uh, dramatic injury time winner, which he bounced off uh, Klaus Ogunthaler. Yeah, and this was when 
Sinisa was a, a guy who used to wear the number 11 shirt. Now he was a winger with, uh, with long hair. It's not the kind of character that we later um, grew accustomed to, I suppose, in, uh, in Serie A. But yeah, the Maracanar that night, I think there were 80,000 fans um, there, but it felt, it felt considerably more. And yeah, in terms of the, the most kind of intimidating atmospheres um, and how, I suppose, the fear that that place puts into, into opponents, no matter how kind of storied. I mean, that Bayern side had absolutely romped through the competition so far. You mentioned that they were, they were favourites. I think they'd scored 17 goals and conceded only three on, the, on, the, on their way to that, uh, that semi-final. And um, there's that incredible video on YouTube of, of walking uh, down the long walk um, in the tunnel um, at the Maracanar, where you have to kind of pass under the end where all the Red Star Ultras um, uh, are standing. And uh, it feels like you're walking, you know, a mile or two rather than, you know, uh, however long it is to get onto the pitch. And it just, uh, yeah, I would, uh, I would not, I don't think I'd be able to get out of the bathroom, um, let alone get out of the, get onto the pitch if I were an opponent playing Red Star in those days. Well, even if you were a Red Star player, particularly a, a young debutant like Sinisa was, uh, the first couple of times he made an appearance at the Maracanã. Woof. Well, there they were through to the final in Bari, which, if memory serves, James, turned out to be the, the worst European final ever played. Would you agree? <laughs> Went to penalties with Marseille. Yeah, I think it uh, undoubtedly was. I mean, uh, apparently the kind of coach's uh, strategy for that game was like, look, I've watched a lot of Marseille this year and, um, you know, when they have the ball, it's not a problem because we can defend really, really well. The problem's when we have the ball because uh, if we give it away, they'll basically counter or they're too good and they'll score on us. So Prime. let's just... Give them the ball, <laughs> so, <laughs> which is exactly what Mourinho did with Inter, of course, up against uh, Barcelona and then and then Bayern Munich. Yeah, who would have thought that uh, this would be a source of inspiration uh, for him? Um, but uh, also, you know, I think a number of, of, of Red Star players have, have have said that. You know, I think there was a sense that someone was trying to buy them um, as well and and fix the game in, in Marseille's favour. And you know they rejected um, that offer, um, and you know they they looked at it as look we're we're a young side, we've got a shot at history, we've still got lots and lots of time to earn money, um, so let's try and win this and win it. They did well indeed. I have to say, I can't think of many more dangerous things to do than throw a game uh, for Red Star, given who was in charge of their of their ultras. Uh, the, the group that was to become the, the paramilitaries known as the Tigers, and I'm, I'm referring to Arkan or Zilko Raznatovic, who at the time was kind of a local crime lord, Capo Tuvosi for Red Star, and then later an indicted war criminal in the uh, bitter civil war. He's somebody that uh, Sinisa met almost immediately on joining Red Star. After a slightly uh, fractious beginning, they became firm friends, and he's someone who will crop up in our story, of course, later on. By the following season anyway, after the European triumph, civil war had broken out throughout the former Yugoslavia. Sinisa by this point had about 50 relatives by his reckoning, including his uncle who'd had to be rescued, his uncle being Croatian, by Arkan and his, his forces and who'd been spared because he said, no, Sinisa's my, my nephew. And uh, he and, and many others were living in, 
in uh, Sinisa's apartment in Belgrade while Mihalovic himself holed up in a local hotel. Anyway, by the following summer, that Red Star team had been broken up as well. Savicevic moves to Milan, Jugovic to Sampdoria, Dokopanchev to Inter, and keen on finding a nice calm club and city, Sinisa <laughs> goes to Rome. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Eduardo Benato with Il Paese dei Balocchi. Roma in 1992 was an interesting club. <laughs> this was just when I arrived in the city and it was, um, yeah, it made quite an impression on me. Owned by Ciarapicco, who would shortly be behind bars for his uh, involvement in the whole Manipuliti corruption scandal. Managed by... Our friend, the Yugoslav fox, Vujadin Boskov. They had players like Giannini, Il Principe, Ruggiero Rizzi Rizzigo Rizzitelli, Andrea Carnavali, Pluto Aldair, also Kanija, who was always out partying and got a band for cocaine during this season as well. Basically, it was a pretty mad club to join. And I remember actually Mihalovic, the, the new boy, who's what, 22 years old, turning up at this club, which was was one of the biggest sides in, in Italy. And I remember reading this headline of an interview with him in Gazetta, kind of introducing himself, where he says, yeah, for me, free kicks are like penalties. I score one in every two. I mean, apart from the fact that's not actually a great penalty-taking record, the crazy thing is his free kick record was actually better than that. Yeah, and he talks about his technique as, as very much uh, like taking a penalty in that um, he is watching the goalkeeper right until the final second. Um, so if there's any movement, um, he will go back to where the goalkeeper was coming to catch him off guard. Um, and if he, st- if he stays rooted to his, his spot, he'll try and find um, the far corner um, instead. I mean, he holds the record in Serie A for the most uh, free kick goals with 28. Uh, It's one more than Andrea Pirlo, even though Pirlo played uh, a lot more games in Serie A than than he did. Um, And of course, you know, he is, I think, still the only only player to score a hat-trick of goals. Obviously, we'll get to that because it came later. Well, let's talk Uh, about it. I mean, uh, let's talk about his free kicks. Yeah, Giuseppe Signori scored a hat-trick of free kicks in a match, but two of those were indirect free kicks. Mihalovic is the only player ever to score three times from a direct free kick. The only player to come close is Mihalovic himself. Much later on, when he was at Inter, perhaps we'll touch on that in a second or two, but in 14 seasons at Roma and then under Sven-Joran Eriksson and later uh, Roberto Mancini at Sampdoria and Lazio, and then under Mancini again at Inter, he scores 28 free kick goals, eight of them in one season, and as you mentioned, three in just the one game, which was uh, 13th of December 1998, a 5-2 victory over Sampdoria, who he'd recently left to join Lazio. When you look at the, the kicks as well, it's striking how, I mean, they really display his versatility. Here is Mihailovic. Oh! 
fantastic. Bet beyond the keeper. And right into the corner from the master of that kind of situation. I think Mancini on the day of this game bet him a million euros a goal, um, not thinking he was going to score. And yet Sinisa comes away with a hat-trick and asks, where's his money afterwards? And Mancini says, you also let in a goal. And uh, I think he let in two goals. And uh, and so I'll give you, I'll give you one million. Um, I think this must have been the time when Lira was around, surely. It's pre, it's, yeah, it's, it was it's, pre, it's slightly pre-euro, pre because that yeah. would be crazy. Um, but I think uh, Mihailovic still wants Mancini to pay up. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the technique is incredible. It's, it's, it's so incredible, so varied, as you, as you say, that you know, when he was, when he was a, a kid coming through the ranks in, uh, in Serbia, the, the University of Belgrade's physics department basically said, um, uh, Sinisa, we want to sort of run experiments and see how hard you're hitting the ball, how quick it's going, you know, how you're basically able to manipulate it and affect these, uh, the, the trajectory and the movement of the ball. Um, so, yeah, I suppose if, if, if you're having uh, academic study, um, your, own, uh, your own technique and, and uh, defying the law of physics, then, then that really is quite something. I, I was surprised to learn that he, a little bit like Beppe Signori, has relatively small feet. You know, mm. He's got a size eight feet. Um, which, and I you know, think when, he wears his boots, like Signori, a size smaller. Yeah, I mean, if you, I, don't, I don't know if you've interviewed uh, Mihailovic James, but he's a he's a tall and imposing guy. He doesn't mm. look like someone who's got small, small feet, dainty feet. No, I I have actually, and you know what? I actually interviewed him after he scored this hat trick of free kicks. Oh wow! And if you and if you'll excuse his Italian, this is what he said. Sì, per me giocare calcio. Se fosse non esistono punizioni, io non so se giocherei calcio. Andrei a giocare football americano, ci sono quelli che stanno là solo per buttare quella palla più avanti. I asked him, do you dream about free kicks at night? You seem to spend a lot of time thinking about them. He said, if there weren't free kicks, I wouldn't play football. There you go. He said, I'd probably play American football and be like uh, a punter or a place kicker. Anyway, I made that assertion at the start, and I'm, I'm not the only one, that he is the greatest free-kick taker ever, certainly in Serie A. And when you look at the world's greatest set-piece specialists, you've got Zico, Zola, Maradona, Beckham, of course, Pirlo, Juninho, Penambucano. This figure of Mihalovic, a sort of tough guy, short-tempered centre-back, looks a little bit like an interloper, but the numbers really do back him up. In 637 games in Italy... He scored 67 free-kick goals in all competitions. When you look at percentage-wise, that's more than anybody else has, has managed. Juninho has got more in his career, but a lot of those were in League 1, not against the likes of Buffon and Van der Sar, Toldo, Zenger, etc. And then he had a couple of seasons in. I mean, I think it's a fair point. He also spent a couple of years in Qatar, whereas Serie A was the venue where Mihalovic did his, did his work. I mean, he, and he was exceptional at corners too. He's, he's yeah. kind of double out with Mancho, the stuff of legends. Well, uh, and also, you know, obviously whenever um, an opponent was kind of game playing against a, a side that had Sinisa in it, um, if uh, a free kick was given away, you know, lots of, lots of players and managers had different ways to try and combat it. So like, for example, Fabio Cannavaro would, uh, would pick up the ball and, and claim that the foul happened uh, further out, but that just kind of helped Sinisa because it was easy to get over the ball. 
Boban was cleverer in that he would move the ball closer to goal um, because uh, for, for for the opposite reason. And uh, I think Sinisa looks back and thinks that was the the smarter move uh, from Zvone. And he also liked the balls really pumped up um, as well. So Carlo Mazzone, who had him at Roma, whenever he used to come up against him when he was manager of sort of Bologna or Brescia, he would uh, he would make sure that the balls were slightly deflated. Deflate gate. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. The Brady tactic, right. <laughs> Excellent. It was, if you're curious, Sinisa who provides the corner on Mancini's greatest ever goal, that flying backheel volley against Palmer. Anyway, uh, Gianfranco Zolo, who's pretty good at set pieces himself, said that he thinks Mihalovic was the best ever. Why is Sinisa not more famous for it worldwide? Well, possibly because he's kind of more famous for other less savoury things. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Right, here we go then, listener. Yeah, this is the, the nasty stuff. He's never been short of controversy as Mihalovic. Not sure what your personal highlights would be of his uh, checkered career, Low James, lights, James. Low, low lights. lights, yeah. You've got 1998 World Cup when he spits at Yen Jeremy's. October 2000, uh, the racist remarks at Patrick Vieira in the Champions League. He subsequently makes a public apology for that, which causes a major split with Lazio's ultras who are furious with him uh, for, you know, basically apologising. Yeah, so he has no problem holding his hands up and basically saying, look, I'm wrong. He has his own version of, uh, of what happened in justification, but that's by the by. And uh, the ultras at Lazio... Um, are deeply upset with him and say, you are not uh, coming out in front of us at the Stadio Olimpico with a microphone in hand and apologising for what you said to Patrick Vieira. And uh, as you say, James, I mean, uh, throughout his career, I suppose Mihailovic, wrongly, as, as, as we'll get to, is is associated with the politics and extremism of elements of that Cordova. And yet they did not have... Um, a hand-in-hand relationship, uh, as is is widely kind of believed or portrayed. In any, on the contrary, it was, it was actually quite fractious. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, one example of that, uh, certainly from his account, is the whole business of the the banner that the Laziali held up in honor of uh, Arkan the Tiger. So, January two thousand, Arkan gets assassinated in Belgrade. By this point, he's been indicted, war criminal. The I think probably everybody knows the kind of things that he and his Tigers had been involved in. And Mihalovic does take out space in a Serbian newspaper to express his condolences, which raise some eyebrows. But the Iriducibili, one group of the Lazio fans, decide and they tell Sinisa that they're going to put up a banner saying honour to the Tiger Arkan. And he says, do not do this. It's nothing to do with me. Don't do this. But they do it. And there's a major storm. 
Uh, Alessandro Mussolini, the uh, former dictator's uh, granddaughter, who was very much in politics at the time, says, honour to the fans for doing this. She thought it was a great idea, but everybody else is outraged, particularly Mihalovic's teammate, Alan Boxic, who, of course, is Croatian, who says that he just felt disgusted and that the, the supporters had no idea what they're doing. The following weekend, you'll, you'll no doubt recall Lazio play away in Turin, where the Torino fans unveil a banner saying, honour to the cat, Sylvester, which I think is probably one of the all-time great bits of uh, Tifo. But, but Mihalovic is very, very clear on the fact that, that that wasn't his idea. The other thing we should mention was one of the most infamous incidents, 2003, when he spat and kicked at Chelsea's Adrian Muto in a Champions League match and received subsequently an eight-game suspension from UEFA because it was very much not his first offence. It's interesting, though, that both Mutu, later on at Fiorentina, and Patrick Vieira in his, his final season uh, as a player ended up on the same side as uh, Mihalovic and, by all accounts, had good relationships with him. It was all kind of very much just water under the bridge. Possibly that's more a testament to them than to him, but uh... well, as well, James, I think as we as we were talking about when he he was up for apologising and did apologise for what he said um, to Patrick Vieira, he will face up to things um, mm. and he will try to explain himself or uh, understand where someone else is coming from. And I think you know as we're going through his his. Uh, his rap sheet, if you want to, if you if you call it that, you 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 would think, yeah, it's the, a lot of these incidents are why people lost respect for him or, or, mm. or overlooked what a talent he was. Um, not just when it came to to bending free kicks over the wall. Well, indeed, probably the thing though that most definitively uh, cleaned up his image uh, from that racist Serb was to come much later in summer 2019. <laughs> James, you spoke recently to Svenja and Eriksson about Senisa. Yeah, I spoke to him on the 20th anniversary of Lazio winning uh, the league title in, mm. in 2000. And um, yeah, Senisa was obviously a, a big part of that team and what a team it was. I think we've already spoken about it on other Golazzo uh, episodes. But, um, you know, when Sven got the, got the job, uh, to to coach that team, you know, he asked Sergio Cragnotti, I think, for I think two or three players, um, and yeah, Sven says that if if Cragnotti had signed them all at once, they would have won the league for three or four years in a row. And right. instead, um, he got uh, Mancini early. I think Man- I think Mihailovic then came a year later, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and Veron, I think, was the other one he mentions too. And Sinisa is a winner. <laughs> <laughs> He's a fighter and a winner. Mm. If you ask Sinisa today uh, if he can play in Serie A, he would say yes. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure he would. And he thought he was the quickest player in Serie A when I had him. And he was not. He was not even quick. <laughs> but uh, nobody could beat him in Serie Of course he was a brilliant football player and his left foot was out of this world. Mm. But mentally, a winner, a winner, a winner. To be second, no. And do you have any special personal memories of him? Specific memories? Well, I have many memories of, of him, of course. And, uh, you know, when I came to Sampdoria, he was on loan from Roma yeah. as a left winger. Mm. 
And after a while, I told him, Sinisa, you are not a winger, you're not an attacker, you're a defender. <laughs> no, he said. No. <laughs> He's stubborn, <laughs> like few. <laughs> At least I got him to play left back, but after a while, I saw no. He's not quick enough there and brilliant with his left foot, but uh, I. I imagine him as a central defender. Hmm. Sven Juren Eriksson sounding in good form there, James. Now, at uh, Sampdoria and later Lazio, as we mentioned, he was Sinisa's manager. And the pair combined, certainly in the in the capital, uh, for probably the best part of both of their careers in Bianco Celeste, under Sven, and then later under Mancini. In six seasons, Mihalovic picking up the Scudetto, UEFA Cup, Super Cup, the European one, uh, two Italian Super Cups, and two Coppa Italia's in there. Of course, there was the double, the double season 2000-2001, in which Mihalovic scored a whopping 13 goals. Uh, just a reminder, he was a centre-back. And then he, he finished off again with Mancini, as mentioned, at Inter, where he could have had another hat-trick. This is another of the few regrets that he has. It's the 0405 season. He scored two direct free kicks in a single game. The third one comes up, and Adriano insists that he should take it. To be honest, James, would you begrudge Adriano taking a free kick? Uh, I think when we did our, our special on him, you know, one of the, the famous moments of Adriano's um, sort of uh, rapid rise in, uh, in Serie A was, I think, against Palermo when he hit the bar and uh, he struck the ball so hard it was something like, I'm exaggerating here, but like 500 kilometres of an hour and it, it, it kind of bounced all the way back to the back beyond the halfway line. But in this case, James, uh, they decided with a, with a good old fun game of rock, paper, scissors. Right, which Adriano won and missed. But never mind, eh? There were plenty of other free kicks that he did score. Interesting career as a player. I mean, phenomenally successful and uh, very durable as well. Uh, one thing that struck you, James, was some of his words about his beginnings in Serie A back at Roma. Yeah, which did not go well at all. Yeah, first two years, he says, the worst two years of his career, um, partly because the war was going on in, in the background and, um, you know, he was uh, yeah, sort of hosting, um, you know, people who were fleeing conflict um, and that wasn't easy uh, mentally. Also, you alluded to it earlier, James, just what a dysfunctional club uh, that Roma were uh, between the kind of, uh, Dino Viola and Franco Sensi eras and he walks into a dressing room and you know has to basically sort of billow out the smoke because he can't see anyone because everyone in that in that dressing room is smoking you know from uh, and you've got Claudio Canigia kind of picking up picking up tab ends on uh, that were that were discarded but you know were still lit and saying you know why why, why, why haven't you smoked this right down to the end? You know, it was that kind of, uh, that kind for, of club. For, it was just remarkable. For all of that, if he hadn't joined Roma, the course of Italian football would have been completely different because of what happens away at Brescia, or indeed before that, when he, he's standing watching the youth team training. This is, this is Mihalovic's version of events anyway. <laughs> Yeah, he, he uh, never tires of, uh, of recounting how he gave Francesco Totti his start in, uh, in life as a footballer at Roma, um, basically sort of saying that he would, he would watch uh, Roma train uh, the under-19s uh, or, or even the Allievi, um, the under-16s at the time, and basically say, oh, Boscov, 
Bosco, have you seen this kid? This blonde kid, he's, he's pretty special. You should bring, you should bring him with us uh, when we go and play Brescia um, at the weekend. And he does. And what, I think they're winning comfortably in that game. And uh, Mihailovic basically shouts over to Bosco, Oi, put the kid on. And, uh, and the rest is history. But I mean, this, this is very much something that is a theme throughout uh, Mihailovic's career, not only as a player, but as a, as a manager as well, because you know, he was the guy who gave Gigio Donnarumma his, mm. his debut when he was, uh, what, only, I think, 16. Yeah, that's at, true. Uh, at Milan as well. So, you know, this not standing in the way of precocious talent is is something that goes to goes to the core of who he is. And also, I think, you know, it's something that, you know, working under Roberto Mancini uh, towards the end of his time at Inter when he was an assistant um, to Mancini, and Mancini has always done that. You know, you look at the work he's done with the national team at the moment, blooding a new generation. You look at how he he launched Mario Balotelli's career. You know, that's something I think um, the two of them have in common. So Mihalovic as a, as a manager then, after hanging up his boots at Inter, he's uh, become an allenatore uh, with the mixed results. Some highs, keeping Catania up. Well, a fair few lows, like the nine days he had at Sporting, and uh, also his time in charge of Serbia wasn't particularly uh, happy. He kicked out Adam Lajic from the national side because he didn't sing the national anthem, and then his Serbia lost the playoff for a place at the World Cup against he the people. He regularly clashed with Lajic, James. Um, right. There's the story of him at Fiorentina. Um, basically, he was asked by reporters there, you know, why aren't you playing Lajic? He's supposed to be the next big thing out of Partizan Belgrade. And he says, well, he's always playing PlayStation and eating chocolate. So, was, you know, right. until this, that was quite the uh, quite the dressing down that mm. Mihailovic gave Lajic at the time. Anyway, his time in charge of the Serbian national side uh, coincides with a playoff defeat to Croatia for a place at the World Cup. Uh, after that... Uh, you got Sampdoria for a season and a half. Milan, where he got the job ahead of Maurizio Sarri. And he actually had his best win percentage with the Rossoneri, 50%. Uh, lasted almost a full season. Went one and a half seasons at Torino. As I mentioned, a brief spell in sporting where a change of ownership saw him out before he'd even begun, really. Before, in January 2019, returning to the club where he'd begun his management career, Bologna. At the time, Bologna looked halfway to City of B. He had an absolutely remarkable second half to the, of the season with them, keeping them up, finishing, in fact, in 10th place that time. He picked up 22 points with Bologna in the last 10 games of the season, which is a phenomenal uh, rate of return for, for a team that, as I say, were heading down when, when he joined them. Yeah, and just to go back to him getting his first start in Serie A with Bologna, I mean, that was controversial at the time because... Um, Bologna is known as uh, La Dotta, La Grassa, La Rossa. You know, it's the the red, the fat, and the the learned because it's a university town. It's a left wing town, and there was this. You know, obviously his association with uh, with Arcan and, and nationalism um, did not go particularly uh, particularly down well there. Um, so that that was a, a short um, a short spell uh, at the Dallara, um, and it's amazing that he's kind of come full circle and is now. Uh, so well loved and uh, well regarded, um, you know. Even before uh, his illness, um, you, you know, you mentioned uh, how well they performed in in the second half of that season once he came in for Pippo Inzaghi. But this is kind of what Mihailovic does. I remember the first really good job he did was uh, at Catania uh, when he he replaced Gianluca Azzori at uh, more or less the same same time of the season. 
and everyone thought that Catania were uh, were gone, and uh, they had a they had a, a kind of rousing Girone di Ritorno, the the second half of the season with uh, with Maxi Lopez um, up front, um, and uh, and easily stayed up, and you know I think in those kind of in those kinds of environments his his kind of uh, backs against the wall mentality uh, works really well. I also thought he did. He did a good job at um, at Milan um, as well. He got them to a cup final, and then you know Berlusconi sacked him um, for for no apparent reason. Um, you know, even though he he put Donnarumma in the team, they were progressing. You know, that was a, that was a Milan austerity Milan at the time where they were mm. really cutting back, and they were just yeah bringing in loans and free transfers. It's a really bad team which he managed to do something with, but you know Mihalovic. Is is right. He's not blowing sort of um, sunshine up his own ass when he says that Juventus, in the last nine years, have twice been in touch with him. First to replace Conte when Conte, at the end of his third season, said, ah, "Do I want to come back? Okay, I'll come back." And um, it was you know whilst he was umming and ahhing that you know, Juventus contacted him, and then you know Conte decides to stay and then resigns at the start of pre-season, and they they appointed Allegri. And then when Allegri left as well, he says, you know, that they they came in for him in, and in, ended up going for Sarri. So he's got, yeah, he's he's got admirers in high places as Mihailovic. Mm. And plenty of admirers these days in Bologna as well. Not just because he kept them up in 2018-19, but also because of his remarkable uh, battle against leukaemia. Now, I mentioned how, and he kind of cites this as well, and he's not entirely comfortable with it, bless him. Uh, the fact that now he's become this kind of almost sainted figure receiving a special manager of the year award for coaching Bologna, even though he was undergoing chemotherapy at the time. But the way that uh, Mihalovic has been so open and courageous in dealing with such a deadly disease, I think has uh, changed the way many people think about him. Uh, from his tearful press conference when he announced that he had this malatia. Uh, two, his appearance in their first game of the season away at Verona, despite the fact that he was in the middle of chemotherapy and facing a bone marrow transport, there he is, kind of looking a bit emaciated, but uh, sitting there on the Bologna bench. Yeah, and he uh, kept a promise. You know, he said that uh, he wanted to be there for the the first game of the season. Uh, I think a lot of people thought he was he was mad, um, given that he was about to undergo and was undergoing. Um, three rounds of of chemotherapy, um, but he wore, he would appear um, in between those rounds. You know when he was he was discharged uh, from hospital. Um, you know he wanted to be uh, on the sidelines, um, and you know in a pre-COVID world they did everything to make sure that um, things were sanitized. He would he would turn up to the stadium with a mask because his immune system uh, was was vulnerable. But uh, it was incredible seeing how Bologna's reacted when he was on the sidelines. Their results were much better uh, when when he was there. You know, he did a lot of delegating uh, for what the first uh, four to six months of the season. Um, you know, his his tactician, um, his assistant, who he grew up with, Miroslav Tansha. Yeah, they had to do the kind of the instruction for most of the games um, in that first half of the season uh, without him. Um, and then would kind of link up in the dressing room at half time and he would um, you know either by kind of a Skype or a video conference would 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 pass on his own thoughts. Um, 
But I mean, it was very emotional to see the Bologna team, you know, when they won without him, they would go to the Sant'Orsola hospital in, in Bologna uh, outside his uh, his window, and you know he would come out, and they would they would sing sing songs. Um, so you know, obviously, it was a very frightening time. You know, this is this is a very serious disease, and you know, in, in you look back at the history of Italian football, and you know, Tommaso Maestrelli, who was the the coach of Lazio in the seventies, um, you know, he had I think cancer and came back. Um, you know, whilst he was uh, whilst he thought he was still in remission. The cancer came back, and he he died while still kind of coaching Lazio, um, and there were fears that that this yeah this might repeat itself uh, with Mihailovic. Um, but you know, uh, luckily he's been able to to come through this after after a bone marrow transplant, and yeah, touch wood seems to be healthy. Mm, indeed, so. Well, he talks a lot about his experiences in hospital, and a couple of things that he says helped get him through. One was Serbian folk music, in particular, this song, Undelja, by Dej. Another thing was takeaway from his old friend Giuseppe Signori and his restaurant Il Campione in Bologna, which is absolutely terrific been there and it, it was really really good and a third thing that kept his spirits up was uh, something that his brother mentioned his brother turned up at a, after a really bad time and uh, reminded him of the occasion when Sinisa Mihalovic had been to see a fortune teller back in the old Yugoslavia it was while he was playing for Red Star Belgrade one of his teammates has gone along with a poster of Red Star and the fortune tellers looked at it and gone who's this and uh, pointing at a picture of Mihalovic, and they say, that's Sinisa Mihalovic. So the fortune teller looks at the person and says, tell him to come and see me right away. Within a week, he's going to have a car crash. Mihalovic has a car crash within the week and immediately then goes to see the fortune teller who comes up with a bunch of stuff and uh, they start a kind of working relationship which involves her visiting the, the parents' home uh, removing some cursed objects which a former girlfriend has left behind. She warns him that uh, the, the girlfriend is going to try and give him a present and at no by, you know, on no account must he touch the present. So he comes out of the house and she's there waiting with something in her hand. She says, Sinisa. He says, no, I can't stop. So he's starting to walk fast. She's walking fast. He starts to run towards his car. She's running too. He jumps into the car. She throws the present into the car. He rings up the fortune teller and says, oh, my God, she's given me the present. The fortune teller says, have you touched it? He says, no, I haven't touched it. She says, come here right now. So he drives 100 kilometres with this present and she takes it and she makes a little kind of special confection of sugar and stuff and, and she says, at the next full moon, literally, this is the story, at the next full moon, you have to shake this up and, and burn it. And then, you know, he never saw her again. So that completely worked. But amongst the things that that fortune teller told Sinisa Mihalovic is that when he was 50, he'd be very seriously ill, but then after that would have tremendous success. So there you go. Well, here's looking forward to all of that then, Sinisa Mihalovic. Uh, it's been an extraordinary career so far, and who knows what is up next. James, do you feel differently about Sinisa? Well, you were covering the league when he was a player. I think I've covered the league more when he's been a manager. And uh, putting all the kind of things we've spoken about to one side, I've always found him really charismatic. Um 
you know, sometimes it feels a little bit forced. I remember when he was coach of Sampdoria, he would, you know, every press conference, it would be, I've been reading JFK's biography today, or I've been reading uh, the latest book about Tesla. And, it, and uh, he came across really cultured, which, again, I, I don't think is, is, is something that a lot of people would necessarily say, given what he himself has said um, in in the past. So it's a rich tapestry um, that, you know, the, 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 he is woven with, with lots of different kind of... Uh, fabrics which make him really a really kind of fascinating person to follow really um and i, I think someone who is who has lived a genuinely fascinating life um in good and in bad and i, I think that makes him a a very compelling uh character i mean he, he's he's very open about it i'm not a hero i think most people probably don't agree with some of the things he's done but i think the fact that he has apologized or recognized his mistakes probably makes a lot of people feel that he's worth appraising again uh, after that. There you go, Sinisa Mihalovic. If you want to know more about him, it, it, it is a very interesting read, his book, La Partita della Vita. Uh, I don't think he's actually out in English yet, but if your Italian's up to it, have a bang at that. Next time up, with Gabriele Marcotti returning, we delve once again into the rich history of Syria and its golden years. Do make sure you join us for that. For now, though, it's many, many thanks to producer Charlie and to James Horncastle and you, listener, for being with us. We'll speak to you soon. For now, from all of us here, it's a Rivederci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Check out all of The Athletic's podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. Marini's Media.